Ladies and gentlemen, tech enthusiasts and cable aficionados, welcome back to another exciting episode of Get Your Tech On. I'm your host, Brady Volt, founder of The Volt Firm and chief product officer of Open Vault. And today, our show is a focus on Doxis 4.0. It's here, should you stay or should you go? Back again for episode 94 is John the Cable Cruncher Downey. He says he's retired, but we know he's always wired. Welcome back, John. <laughs> it's always good to be back. You know, uh, I would have came up on 23 years at Cisco this month, and uh, I opted to take the uh, exit package. So uh, I took the package from Cisco, and I'm going to do some consulting on the side for Technetics. They have some cool RF stuff, which is right in my wheelhouse, you know, for the last 30 years. Um, so it's, it's, uh, it's been a good ride, but RF is not dead, obviously. Right. I mean, there's a lot more, uh, uh, runway to go. Yeah. We've got a long, long future on it. So, well, that's awesome, John. That's, uh, that's exciting news for you. I think, um, you know, the consulting world is an exciting world. Obviously I've been doing it for a long time. So, um, yeah, so I think we got some cool stuff to talk about today um, on Doxis 4.0, Doxis 3.1. You know, we were at the, sh- at the uh, Cable Tech Expo a couple weeks ago. We saw the latest technology, so I think that kind of blends well into what we'll be talking about today with um, 4.0 and you know the technologies related to that. Um, I think I think one of the things we'll talk about kind of at the end is if, if you're a cable operator and you're on 3.1, it's like you know how much more can we get out of 3.1? Should we be even looking at 4.0? And you know kind of where we're going there. So um, folks, if you're watching, you know, please drop your questions in the chat. We'll be sure to answer those questions and smash that like button. And if you haven't already, please do subscribe so you get notified when we launch our next video. Um, so with that, John, I, I think, you know, let's, um, let's start talking about, you know, I think we should just dive in, like, why are we even doing DOCSIS 4.0, um, the differences between FDX and extended spectrum ESD, extended spectrum DOCSIS. Um, so, you know, the first off, why DOCSIS 4.0, what, what's it at? Um, you know, what are your thoughts on that? So we know what we got with DOCSIS 3.1, and it extended our upstream spectrum to 204, which allowed us to get more spectrum utilization and more OFDMA, DOCSIS 3.1. Uh, and we know what we can get out of that. Um, well, what, what is that? Yeah. I mean, 3.1, we can do... We could offer a one gig offering. Yeah, that's, that's been a goal. One gig in the downstream. That's but, like our, pen, our panacea, our yeah. holy grail. Like, that's what we're going for, right? Uh, to be able to offer one gig symmetrical. It doesn't have to be symmetrical, but to be able to say you can offer one gig on the upstream, it's huge. But, but to do one, one gig on the upstream, you have to expand. You, know, you can't have a 42 megahertz return, right? You have to extend that. Right. Yeah, the best you can get out of 42 megahertz, we said, is probably realistically like a 100 meg service. Right. And that's pretty good, right? A 100 meg offering. Uh, and that's over subscription and, you know, selling it to a lot of people. Correct. Uh, the aggregate, when we looked at OFDMA mixed with single carry qualm with a 42 megahertz system, you can get about maybe 150 megabit per second aggregate. So offering a 100 meg service is realistic. Yeah. Um, but the more people that sign up, then the we got to exploring each other. <laughs> we got to expand our 42 megahertz return to an 85 megahertz return. Yeah. So what, we what can we get there? Split, a mid split, and now the high split is 204, right? Right. So that's kind of the terminology people have been using is the sub split's 42. In Europe, it's always been 65. The mid split was an 85, and that was in the spec for DOCSIS 3.0. DOCSIS 3.1 expanded at the 204. 
So, uh, and it's part of the spec. So the, the hardware and the CPE, the customer premise equipment, have to support those frequency ranges and the capacity to fill it up. Correct. But let's not kid ourselves in Doxus 4.0. We're talking about, you know, we call it the 10G initiative. That's what it's been for the last, what, five, six years? It's been for 10G. a while. That's been talking about 10G. And it really didn't mean yeah. 10 gigahertz. It meant 10 gigabit per second. Correct. That's what we're trying to go for. Not not 10th generation or whatever you want to like 4G and 5G, right? Um, it's 10 gigabit per second. But that was downstream. But in reality, we're trying to do DOCSIS 4.0 to increase the upstream. But to increase the upstream, you eat into the downstream spectrum. Hence, you have to do something with the downstream. Right. You overlap it. Or extend it further to 1.8 gigahertz. Right. It's actually like 1.7912 or something like that. Gig, gigabit per second in the downstream. No, no, gigahertz. Oh, I'm, yeah, I'm, gigahertz. I'm sorry. Yeah, gigahertz. Yeah. <laughs> I'm getting screwed yeah, myself. Because right. what we're talking about is right now with DOCSIS 3.1, we're able to go up to 204 megahertz for a return path. But with DOCSIS 4.0, we're going to extend 204 to even higher frequencies so we can have a larger return path and have more speed in a return path. To your point, to have that 10 gigabit symmetrical, or, well, maybe not 10 big gigabit symmetrical, but 10 gigabit speeds. Um, and, and that's why you're saying we're eating into our downstream. Yeah, they were, they were looking at saying 10 gig down, 5 gig up. Right. Potentially. Um, and that would be more like aggregate speed that this system could provide. Whether you offer... Uh, 10 gig service, I don't know if that would be possible. Maybe it's a five gig by two gig or something. It's still, still <laughs> hella cool. <laughs> That's a lot of speed. I mean, it's a lot of speed that we even said, do people really need one gig? And it's not that people don't need it, they might just want it. And, right. you know, it, so it comes down to marketing too. Like, if I can offer that speed, then it helps uh, keep away the, the competition saying, well, if they already offer it, what, what am I going to have? You know, why would I overbuild, you know? There, so there is a lot of marketing competition there for, you know, if, if you have an incumbent in the area and they're offering gigabit speeds, then the cable operator has to be able to market those same speeds to not lose the subscribers on that network. Yeah. Where they have to come up with sticky apps. Right. You know, something so, that makes people stay. So, so when we talk about, you know, the fact that we have to increase our upstreams, the first technology, so there's two technologies in DOCSIS 4.0. One is FDX, or full duplex DOCSIS. The other one is ESD, or extended spectrum DOCSIS. So yep. full duplex DOCSIS, let's talk about that first, because full duplex DOCSIS does not require cable operators to, to go to 1.8 gigahertz or even 1.2 gigahertz, right? It's, it really doesn't force us into those really high frequency spectrums that we believe to be challenging, but it does use a different technology that is still ch a challenging technology where we don't have diplex filters in our amplifiers. And that's, that's you know, taking removing diplex filters from our amplifiers, and we have diplex filters in our amplifiers and nodes to allow signals to go both directions. That's But it separates our upstream from our downstream, these basically a low-pass and high-pass filter coupled together. So really important component. We get rid of that component. How do we have signals going in both directions? Well, we've always had signals going in both directions because we know what frequencies we're transmitting and receiving, mm -hmm. right? The CMTS and the cable modem control which frequencies are used. But the diplex filter in the amplifiers, you have different gain stages, right? You have a pre- and post-amp for the downstream and usually have just maybe one hybrid or a gain stage for the upstream. But inside that active device, you can't afford a runaway oscillation yes. where the signal on the downstream bleeds over to the upstream because the hybrid itself is not 5 to 42. 
average right. might be five to two hundred, yes. five to three hundred megahertz. You're buying generic like amplification, and then you're controlling that spectrum with filters, right? External. So the so, so we're isolating that return path hybrid yeah. from the Ford, so you don't and have the oscillation that you're talking yeah. about. If the downstream bled over to the upstream, it would then bleed back to the downstream and just run away, and then cause a big spike at a certain frequency. Yep. Sometimes based on what that total path is. Correct. So you can have a. Um, you make your own like crystal oscillator or some type of oscillator where you have like a, a CW carrier or something like that. Well, what happens in today's amplifiers sometimes if if we have um, some you know improper grounding in the amplifiers and we cause we call this resonant peaking, and we can see this in full band capture. It's something that we train technicians on how to identify resonant peaking where you have too much gain in a downstream. And that's basically what's happening. We're, you know, we're getting a little bit of a feedback loop in the RF amplifier that causes the downstream to have a peak in it. Um, so that's, it's a problem and we know how to identify it and we know how to fix it when it occurs. So it, it's, it's a bad thing when it happens. So if we pull out those diplex filters, to your point, that can cause a real problem in, yeah, in, in, in the system. You the gains on the downstream and upstream and the total isolation and losses. Correct. So the losses actually exceed the gain in the total path. You know, there's three places where it actually can occur. And it brought, it brought up a, uh, something I remember from Jim Coons. Remember Jim Coons? Oh, yes. Supported, I think, Comcast way back in the day in Minnesota area. I'm sure he'll like to shout out here. <laughs> uh, I'm not even sure where he's at right now. It could be Thailand or something. <laughs> uh, but a great guy. And uh, he had a, a, a Prezo when I worked at Secor years ago, 20-some years, 25 years or 30 years ago. I don't know what it was. Your old job. Um, <laughs> and it was, it was a one-way amplifier that you got a kit to upgrade it to the two-way. And the diplex filter, there was no diplex filter because it was one way. So there was a jumper. And then you got this kit with diplex filters you would plug in. And people forgot to cut the jumper. <laughs> so the signal could loop through the diplex filter and the jumper. Yep. Right there, diplex footer location. So there's a little oscillation right there. Right. The other one was just what we talked about, downstream and upstream. Maybe someone changed out the hybrid and there's more gain than loss because they had a, a hybrid upgrade or something. Correct. Uh, the other one was, what if you have power in and out of the amplifier? The only thing that creates uh, this non-loop between power and, say, your upstream path or even the downstream path would be the RF chokes. Right. When you put in an input and output fuse, you create a loop between the gain stage and the power fit and the power stage. You know, so it could loop that way. And we've seen that occur back in the day. Sequel, we had some issues where I think we ended up creating a filter on an input or output fuse. So we created maybe more losses, so that signal wasn't bleeding. It was very low frequencies, like two megahertz. Yeah, but. And, and you, so you threw out RF chokes. We should you know explain those for anyone who may not know. An RF amplifier, um, you have both AC power and RF coming in to the RF amplifier. The AC power or quasi square wave signal is required to power the RF amplifier. Um, but on the coax cable, we have AC power and RF coming in at the same time. That what that RF choke does is it allows the RF to go into the amplifier and it decouples the AC power right. off of the, yeah, look at the name. Look at it. It chokes it, the RF. It chokes it. That's a great way. Yeah. It chokes, chokes the, the it chokes the power. It chokes the AC because it's very low no, frequency. It chokes, yeah, it chokes the RF. Yes. <laughs> so the RF chokes the choke the RF. So the RF goes the right way. There's a there's a capacitor that would block the AC from feeding the RF side. 
Correct. And then the R, the AC would just go down through the choke and to the AC side. Yeah. Uh, that way you can just feed your your power pack, and then it provides you know twenty four volt DC to the hybrids and all that. Yeah. But so basically, way, the choke just separates the RF from the AC. Yeah. It's like a diplex filter for power. Yes, versus exactly. Power, right. And we know the AC is at sixty hertz or fifty hertz in the US or in in UK, and it runs down right down to the center of that center conductor. Yep. Unlike the RF that has a skin effect and it's traveling on the skin of that center conductor. Correct. That's why, you know, the center conductor of our coax is copper clad aluminum. We're not going to do full copper because it's just too expensive. And none of that RF is running down the middle. It's just really AC is running down the middle or the whole cross-sectional area or whatever it is. Right. But either way, so that's that's where you get these runaway loops. And we talk about diplex filter, why we have diplex filters. Um, full duplex doxes, we knew that... There was problems going to 204. I have uh, cumulative leakage index, leakage testing at 135.2625 or whatever it is. I have uh, old set-top boxes at 74 megahertz that may be frequency agile to move it to 104 megahertz, but that's MPEG-2 set-top boxes, right? Digital, digital set-top boxes, out-of-band signaling for the set-top box. And you could say, well, I'll just get rid of it. Well, when you have two, three, four million boxes out in the field, that's a little hard pill to swallow. Um, so there are things in the downstream, like in the UK, in Germany, they have to carry the FM radio. From 88 to 108, they have right. to carry that on the downstream. So how do you increase your upstream to 204 if you're relying on that spectrum for downstream broadcast from the head end? Correct. You know, how do you get rid of that signal? Do you move test equipment, sweep equipment, leakage equipment? These are um, all challenges that we have to deal yeah. with as part of either whether it's e- 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 um, FDX, DOCSIS 4.0, or ESD, DOCSIS 4.0. These, these are Correct. some of the challenges in deployment that cable operators will be facing moving forward. So, so, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so FDX, how, you know, how, how does FDX compensate for removing the diplex filters? I, I think it's the, the echo cancellation echo part. Echo cancellation, yeah. That was part of the, the secret sauce was yes. – um, and let's say echo is reflection, mm-hmm. echo and reflection, right? So if the downstream signal and I can design it enough, instead of a diplex filter, I could put a directional coupler in mm-hmm. as a diplex filter, separate. Directional couplers have a little bit better uh, port-to-port isolation, in, output-to-output isolation or input-to-input, whatever you want to call it. Um, it might be 40 dB of isolation, which is great. Um, there are ways to add more isolation so it doesn't bleed over. But a diplex filter is frequency specific. Correct. Whereas the other idea, there's no frequency spe- specificity to it. <laughs> Which means we can change the frequency that our downstream and our upstream has without having to go in and change the diplex filter now yeah, if we don't, don't have them in our amplifiers. Yep. So doing that, it helps solve the problem of the internal oscillation or whatever you want to call it, a yep. peak resonant. Uh, but what about downstream signals that are coming out 50, 55, 60 dBmV? Super high outputs now, right? Very high. And it's going down to the first tap or splice in the middle of your span and reflects. That reflection could be so high, it's still high enough to bleed back in and cause problems. Right. Or re-reflect and affect your downstream original signal. So you have two downstream signals. You have your yeah. original signal and then yeah. a reasonably high signal that's been reflected coming down. So now your modem or your set-top box that's trying to receive these signals is, is going to have multiple signals coming into those devices. So yeah. these are what we call micro-reflections. 
Yeah. Just like we always talk about for upstream. Right. Now it could be kind of detrimental for downstream as well uh, and affect the active devices. So they have this thing called echo cancellation that it knows when the original signal goes out and it knows what that signal would look like in a difference of time. These reflections so that you talked about. And it can cancel that out digitally. Right. So it's not an RF filter, but digitally it can cancel it out like like pre-equalization can do for upstream. The same way it's, do, it's the same way pre-equalization does it today when we take advantage of that to identify problems in the plant. Mm -hmm. So what's interesting about a fiber node is one, we also know that we're going to go DAA, distributed access architecture. To do a 204 megahertz upstream, we have to digitize the upstream. We're going to have really bad uh, laser clipping. Mm -hmm. So we'll always worry about laser clipping and overload. If we make it digital, we don't have to worry about that anymore because it's an on-off fiber. So we do a DAA node. Now, remember, coming into the node, you have upstream and downstream uh, fiber, right. right? Different wavelengths or same wavelength but different fiber. Uh, could have two fibers or could have one yeah. fiber with 1510 10 nanometer optics. Right? The only dipex filter in a node is on the output. If we do FDX, we get rid of that, put a directional coupler in so there's no – frequency specific cutoffs and stuff like that. Um, so we have an echo cancellation on the output of the fiber node and that's enough because there's no real loop right. in the fiber node. There's no feedback, there's no input diplex motor, right? Uh, but when you get to the amplifiers, it's a different story. You got, in, you got both, you got input and output on both sides of the amplifier. That's where things can get a little sketchy. And FDX was a technology that said, you know, we could run frequencies on top of each other if one frequency has a better MER than the other frequency. So this is kind of the key is, let's say I want to transmit at 100 and, or 300 megahertz on the upstream, mm -hmm. and you're far enough away that I would not interfere with you, uh, and you, your signal, downstream signal, is always on. It's broadcast, right? Like CMTSs are today. So I'm continuously transmitting at 300 megahertz in the downstream, right? Is that what you're saying? Yes. So let's say you are receiving downstream at, what we say? 300 megahertz. 300 megahertz. And that signal is definitely coming to me too because there's no way to just shut it Always off. Always transmitting in the downstream. Always transmitting. But it's hitting my house at plus five. Right. I'm transmitting at 48. The cable modem's transmitting at 48. Yes. Also at 300 megahertz? Yes. Same instant in time, same frequency, but the levels are good enough separation that my MER will be good enough for me to run 1K qualm maybe. Maybe 512 qualm. In the upstream. Maybe 2K qualm. So that's kind of the key is where interference affects each other and the MER readings will dictate if it'll work or not. So... The problem with FDX would be understanding who interferes with who. So they came out with this thing called sounding, where the CMTS would tell the modem to transmit and then monitor all the modems downstream and say, all right, who has a poor MER because this guy was transmitting the upstream? Because they collide even with each other. It affect me. What if my upstream affects you? The like your neighbors. Yes. Because so, yes. these two modems could transmit and collide with each other, right? And, and they're definitely going to be the same frequency, but if they're the same level, 
all bets are off, right? right. There's zero MER. <laughs> bad MER. Really, really so, bad MER. So two neighbors will definitely be in the same interference group. Right. They will never be full duplex. A modem will never be full duplex. I can do upstream or downstream. I can't do both at the same time. Yeah. If you're my neighbor, we both could maybe share the upstream at the same time and sh- and do the downstream at the same time, but we can't do upstream and downstream at the same time. We gotta we gotta be simplex. Duplex. It's simplex. Some people have said half duplex. I'm like half and do. Half do. So basically, a tap will be simplex. Uh, an amplifier leg would be simplex. Um, when you run the sounding and in interference groups and transmission groups, you're going to find that you might end up because one of the almost requirements was node plus zero for FDX, which was a non-starter for a lot of people. The original Normal requirements. Node plus five amps, you right. know, node plus six amps. I don't want to change my spacing. I don't want to change my tap locations, my amplifier locations, number of amplifiers, my power supplies. I don't want to change any of that. If I'm going to upgrade, I want to make one visit, maybe change out a module in the housing and be done. No checking the connectors or changing anything. Um, so th- there's some 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 requirements or prerequisites that uh, these companies want, and that's not to spend too much money, obviously, and keep using what we have. So the FDX, I think, if we're going to do an N plus 2, N plus 3, there's some people touting amplifiers with echo cancellation. I believe when we look at it, we're going to find that any leg that has a bunch of amplifiers is going to be one big interference group. So right. it's not going to be FDX. The only place it will be FDX would be this leg of the node against this leg of the node. Right. Two different legs of a node. They would probably be, you know, full duplex. Wouldn't it? Like the core of the network would would also be more like full duplex as well. So, so, so it kind of begs the question is how – there were some studies done saying – how often do we really need the downstream and upstream to be on at the same instant in time? Same exact instant in time. And someone came up with like, it was like 14 seconds a day or it was something like ridiculously low. We definitely need the speed, but do we need it at the same instant in time? And before I go down that path, let's look at what the other solution was, the other camp versus uh, the FDX, and that was ESD, yeah. extended spectrum doxis. Why don't we just keep doing what we're doing? We do diplex filters, we do splits. Let's just move it up. If we move the upstream up to get more upstream speed, we get into the downstream. How do we get more speed out of the downstream? Uh, reclamation of digital qualms. Get rid of it all. Do all doxis 3.1, some single carrier qualms for, for the old legacy modems, but get rid of the set top boxes, do all IP. Right. IP set top boxes, all IP. The other option is go from 1 gig to 1.2, which is part of 3.1 spec, all the way to 1.8, which is the 4.0 spec. It's actually a 1.7. Yeah, and, and, that's, and that's extended spectrum doxis. So there's FDX, right. which really doesn't go above a gig. Extended spectrum doxis goes to at least 1.2 or 1.8 gig. And we, we saw that at Expo where there was a lot of 1.8 gig equipment. I mean, so this stuff is real. And I, and I just want to, in the chat room, um, Rick Yuzi asks, um, he says, is this, is this a VHS or uh, Betamax yeah. thing where, you know, we, there's kind of two technologies of FDX and ESD, extended spectrum doxis. He says, I'm sure uh, this will be supported, but do you, you know, do you think that the, um, 
they will have more you know, what will have the most adopters and as he I, says you know right I, now comcast seems to be betting on fdx where most other operators are looking at esd so i use that terminology all the time and i would say a better analogy for the beta beta max versus vhs would be uh remote five versus remote mac five that yes. is much better because remote five came out first it got adopted quicker. It got interoperability quicker, and people are solidifying on Remote Fi. Yes. Even though Remote MacFi has some good legitimate reasons why it works, and that could be distance and timing and stuff like that. Uh, but we found ways around that for Remote Fi, and Remote Fi mostly is like changing out an existing node area that's only twenty kilometers away. Yes. So Remote Fi works fine. If but if you want to go a thousand miles away, uh, you could do it with Remote Fi. But it's probably even easier with maybe remote MacFi, right, or remote CMTS or something like that. In regards to FDX and ESD, I don't think it's a either or. I think it's going to be both. Right. I think you're going to find that you have, say, I'm Charter, and I'm like, you know what? I have a system in St. Louis. It's very densely populated. Node plus zero makes sense. I can hit everybody with a node. Right. I don't need a bunch of amplifiers. But I'm out where I live right now, no plus ten could be the norm. <laughs> in, the, in, a, in a rural area. Yes, it makes no sense. You gotta have you gotta have amplifiers in rural areas. Yes. Yeah. It's either that or wait for Elon Musk to come in with you know Starlink. But you know, Rick goes Rick goes on to th- says he says, I think the amplifiers for FDX are more complicated than ESD. Than expected. So there are amplifiers for FDX, but the complexity yes. and and complexity drives cost as well. Yeah. So yeah. so that's that's gonna make it you know, maybe it's an issue there as well. And he says the the reason for FDX seems to be more of a marketing checkbox, symmetrical mm-hmm. service. So I, I think, you know, is is that true, do you think? Is it I think it's a way to offer the higher speed to ring the bell for the customers to get a higher speed without having to go to 1.8 gigahertz without changing any taps. That might be a big one right there, right? Changing out all your taps, uh, worrying about the coax and connectors going out, out to 1.8 gigahertz, not having to change your set top boxes. That's a big one, right? Yep. So your bean counters are looking at how much money you're going to need to change out all these set-top boxes, your CLI, your test equipment. And that could be one of the bigger drivers for, say, Comcast or a big company like that, betting on FTX. They don't want to make that investment to do an ESD, uh, but they're going to make the investment on FTX so they can save on this part. Yes. And put money in this part. <laughs> and and, and re- regardless of whether which technology you go with, FDX or ESD, as JazzCat102 says, you have to go all IP in your network because you can't have, you can't, it's really, if not impossible, it's very difficult to send analog signals over either an FDX or an ESD network um, because they're really meant to be IP based. So that is something that operators have to do. Let's take a step back from that because remember, our digital signals are still RF, qualms. Yes. Quadrature, FP modulation, it's still an RF signal. It's not real digital IP on off light, right? Um, So I can still do MPEG 2, qualm, analog video, if you want to call it digital, let's call it digital video, digital video. And that could be conserved in an FDX or ESD solution. Correct. Right? It's when you go EPON and GPON that you have to be a pure IP solution. 
And I brought up earlier, you have to do IP video if you want to reclaim those digital qualms for more spectrum space to do more 3.1. Mm-hmm. But there's if you do FDX or ESD, you can still do those digital qualms. Correct. You, yeah, you but just can't they, do any analog. You can't do anything. Correct, yeah. Yeah, the old uh, 6 megahertz, you know, video, chroma, those are audio. Gone. Those are gone. Yeah. Yeah. And there's still a number of operators out there that still have those analog channels. So they, you know, they have to migrate away from those and get into a digital network, if not think, IP yeah. network. You would think if the over-air, off-air broadcasters went digital years ago, <laughs> why are we still okay? But then again, that might be the sticky app, right? Yep. That's the thing you offer that keeps grandma still paying for her service because, oh, she has an old TV. She might have a new TV, but she has two other old TVs that only get new video, yep. you know. So we said with FDX, you know, challenges were the, you know, echo cancellation and, and feedback and amplifiers and things like that. With ESD, challenges of going to higher frequencies are, you know, that's alone is is no simple task going to 1.8 gigahertz. Correct. We've not done that before. Yeah, we worry about, I, as an RF guy, I know that uh, cable and the plant gets very more... Uh, Particular yeah. is is um, very more is that proper grammar, John? <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I got me is laughing over here. So I had to <laughs> it's persnickety. Yeah, <laughs> my cable gets persnickety. Uh, when you get higher frequencies, any little ding in the cable craftsmanship, it really shows up bad. Very, uh, very more bad. Yeah, very more bad. <laughs> very more better. Yeah. <laughs> That's as bad as it gets, man. We're on Penn State on right here. So that's we I'm both went here. to Penn State. Yeah, that's why, that's why we speak this way. <laughs> we learned so, a lot there, man. Yeah. You know, we definitely are worried that craftsmanship of the connectors, the heat shrink, the RF connectors, the seizure screws, the modules, the housing, putting tap housing side by side by side could have a detrimental effect you never thought about. Because of the cavity of the housing itself bounces back and forth. And if you put another one right beside it, housing to housing, connector, that could back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. You don't know how things can build up. Um, That actually happened to me in Japan. And no one really thought, you know, an eight-port tap would be right next to another eight-port tap, next to another eight-port tap. So you end up with the size of the tap housing having a, a, a cavity affecting the next one and the next one and adding up and causing a frequency runaway oscillation yeah, um, or, or, or suck outs or something like that, like bad grounding. Well, for so, any, I mean, any technicians who's worked in the field that, and, and spent time with in the higher frequency range, they know how sensitive it is to things like loose connectors or water that gets into an amplifier or passer, passive dramatically attenuates high frequencies. It's very, very sensitive. And that's in plants that go to a gigahertz. Now we're going to be going to 1.8 gigahertz. We're almost doubling the downstream, doubling the frequency. You know, so one gigahertz yeah. to one point or eight hundred more megahertz of frequency that we're looking to add on to the plant in extended spectrum DOCSIS ESD. So I think that is a huge challenge that we're going to run. The the newer challenges that we're going to run into solving issues that we've not experienced before i think those are going to be lovely (laughs) let's say you know i'm happy with my downstream yes i'm going to upgrade to 1.8 but i don't plan on activating anything past 1.2 for a while you know maybe that's the case but you're going to extend the upstream to get the upstream speed that's why we're doing this yeah so 
let's let's say that you're going to go to 396. The Diplex filter, no man's land, is about 25%. They're trying to get that down to 20%, but it's about 25% of your highest upstream frequency. So if you go to close to 400, 25% is 100 meg. So your downstream doesn't start till 600. And, and what you're talking about this no man's land, you're talking about the the gap between the low pass and the high pass um, the cutoff in the diplex yeah. filter. So so yes. right now, like in in a 42 megahertz return, that gap is between 42 megahertz and about 52 megahertz. So you have that gap, and and you're saying as you go higher in frequency, that gap is going to get wider and wider and wider. That you you just can't yes. do anything with that frequency range. Correct. In in now, basically the cutoff between your diplex filter. Yeah. So if you know the the highest frequency listed for Doxis four uh, O is six eighty. 690, 680. I thought it was 695, 694? but I could be wrong on that. <laughs> that I haven't written down. It's like add 96 to 204, like it's to yep. 300, and it's 396. Add 96 again and again and again, and that gets you to six something, right? That's the highest it's listed. So in FDX, 108 to 684, I think it is. I think it might be 684. So, uh, you're right. That, it's 684 that in a downstream. is allocated for upstream and downstream overlap. Yep. That's the spectrum for the overlap. Uh, that overlap could never be a primary downstream either, by the way. The primary downstream where the modem locks has to be outside that overlap. Meaning so it has to be, be higher than the overlap because it has to be in the usable yeah. channel range. Yeah. So it would have to be above 684 somewhere, like your PLC or whatever right. you're using for, for as a primary channel. could still be a single carrier qualm, but it's got to be way up there now. Um, so that's that's the talk about FDX is overlapping 108 to 680, 684. Um but for the upstream, what were we getting at? If if I extend it out and I use ESD, the diplex filter can be huge. If I go to 684, one-fourth of 684 is probably over 150 megahertz of no man's land in my diplex filter. It's a lot so of lost bandwidth. Right. Almost 700. 150 above that, it's like 850. Yeah. <laughs> Man, you just lost all your downstream, you know? So you have to go up to 1.8 gigahertz. Yep. And yeah, because imagine if we had 150 megahertz of bandwidth that we could just allocate to the upstream, and you're just saying we're going to throw that away. So it means yes. we need that much more downstream spectrum. So it's really yeah. pushing us to higher frequencies. Yeah. That's why some people are thinking, uh, if I do go past 204, maybe 396 is the next split I do. And it lasts me for the next five, six years, and I retire. <laughs> you know, <laughs> or we go fiber. After that, we go to fiber. Would, would be yeah. the next thing. And then really, that's that, that's the end goal. I think is fiber. Now so we all know that. Now we've talked before about eighty-five megahertz, two hundred four megahertz. The challenges that we're going to have in the upstream with attenuation, um, thermal changes, and, and things like that. And you know, do you see or, or do you know if if vendors are going to put automatic gain control or anything like that in the return for our amplifiers or are we just going to have to build headroom in for our amplifiers for the return path when temperature changes and we have uh, that excessive attenuation due to cable loss and things like that in our returns so 204 i think we can make it no problem if we design properly and we allocate some headroom the modems 31 modems have more power than 30 modems you know, apples to apples comparison. So putting a through one modem in gets you some headroom. Uh, throwing in DAA and distributed access architecture, you're putting the CMTS right at the node now. So instead of having to hit the node at plus 10, maybe you're hitting it plus three. 
Right. Because normally you want to hit the CMTS front end at zero. So you just gained a little bit by going DAA because you don't have to hit the node with such high levels anymore because it's right there. The upstream chipset is in the node. Um, so you got higher power modems, lower required input at the node. So that helps right there. Um, but with temperature past 204, I ran some numbers on that before, and I'm like, it could be a plus 8, minus 8, plus 10, minus 10 swing. Remember, if it's black jacketed, sun-loaded cable, it's like 40 degrees above ambient temperature because yeah. they're sun-loading. And then you go uh, drop cable, span, 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 node. It's got to overcome all that. So right. you can't rely on this long-loop level control of CMTS and cable modem negotiating levels to make up for a 20 dB swing, 10 up, 10 down. You know, you might have 3 dB of headroom. So Upstream AGC or ALC, I used to call AGC was a pad change and ALC was a slope change. Mm -hmm. Whatever you want to call it, automatic slope control, automatic level control, it's going to be needed. Um, and there are all the manufacturers, ATX, Technetics, anyone making amplifiers, uh, AOI is now jumping in the game as well. They're all looking at smart amplifiers. and That's the big talk. Yes. Yeah, looking at the downstream AGC circuitry and extrapolating that information for the upstream. And it does make sense because remember, if your, your amplifier is here, you are checking levels coming in on the input cable. And if levels change, you know temperature is affecting that cable and you adjust the AGC so you have constant output out of the amplifier. Correct. Well, that cable is the same cable that this upstream has to compensate going back. So if the downstream knows what this cable is doing, the downstream can dictate or extrapolate for what this upstream needs to do to overcome what we think is going to happen. So we hit the next amplifier flat. So with the smart amplifiers, and, and we really haven't talked about smart amps before, they will have the ability to allow cable operators to automatically configure the downstream padding and equalization, configure the upstream padding and equalization, and this will be done remotely. We'll have um, you know, a way to communicate with the amplifiers remotely so we can, we can make this change. Do you see that um, as we go to ESD, where you know, we have a 384 megahertz return, will we be able to um, potentially have a quasi real-time ability to adjust the return path and smart amplifiers to compensate for changing returns? Is, is that something that perhaps would be valuable for us in, in, in ESD DOCSIS world? Yeah, yeah. This, well, it's kind of two or threefold. One is if I don't have to have every technician running around with a tackle box full of all these pads in 1DB increments, I could probably save thousands and thousands of dollars wasted dollars and in stock dollars just sitting there um, because I got rid of all those accessories. So the accessories are gone. I don't need them. I don't have to worry about them. I don't have to worry about human error. Uh, and then I don't have to worry about, you know, changing things on the fly or making truck rolls. If I can see my amplifiers, I have visibility and I can change things on the fly or it just automatically says, this is a level, this is a tilt I want, keep everything constant. Um, so that's, I think that's the way to go. But it was always, I think technology is finally catching up where we have the smarts on smaller chipsets and we can do this at a cheaper price. But you mentioned about cost, but it's also power too, right? The more devices you put in that eat power, the more I have to worry about the total wattage of the device. Yeah. There's some limitations there as well. Yeah, and that's the struggle with smart amplifiers. There's... Uh... 
there's a lot of benefit that we can get from smart amplifiers, but then there's the trade-off of cost, reliability, when you're adding more tech into the smart amplifier, and then power. Um, So I'm really interested in the smart amplifier technology, but I'm also really, um, I guess, kind of cautious to see how they get rolled out and and how they work over time. It's kind of that opportunity cost trade-off that we're looking at with with those technologies. Um, I I have... I always have comments. But yeah, of course. And subparts to your comments. Probably <laughs> <laughs> subpart A, B, and C. So the communication is kind of interesting, and, and this is why I, I agreed to consult with Technetics. I think they're doing some cool stuff. One of the things, and it, it's the terminology it's in the industry, but we don't use it very often, it's PLC, and it's not the physical link channel or whatever. It's uh, power line communication. So yes. you can look up power line communication. But in my mind, that sounds like, communication over a power line and that's not what they're talking about it's using the power line in the coax which we call the center conductor and we talked about earlier (laughs) through that center conductor at a real low frequency of like 400 kilohertz yeah it's not very very effective rf but it's really really low frequency rf and because of the skin effect it wouldn't be on the skin it would be more like going down the center of the center conductor like Mm -hmm. our power does and because it's low frequency, it wouldn't get cut off by the RF choke. It would go through the RF choke through the power line of your amplifier. So even if your amplifier is dead and there's no power to it, you could can still communicate, communicate yep. to the next amplifier or the next one. You know what I'm saying? So it's kind of a cool idea because I can almost have an out-of-band communication, out-of-channel, out-of I don't know what you're going to out of this world. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, I think it's out of band. I think that, I mean, it's still because it's not within the main channels. And the the reason that oper- or the, uh, vendors are looking at doing this, because some people say, why don't you just put a cable modem in there and, and use a cable modem as your communications? Cable modems draw a lot of power. Um, so we, we're, we're looking at alternative ways, alternative yeah. communication ways uh, to communicate with the amps that are cost effective and use very low power. And this power line method is it's a brilliant idea. So I'm, and, and they need RF. Yes, exactly. RF goes down. Or what, if, what if the DOCSIS network is down and we and still need to troubleshoot and get down. data from the it's amplifier like, to see. My down. Oh, I can't get to my amplifier. Exactly. It's yeah. SNMP or it's DOCSIS related and it's down. You so. can't troubleshoot. If the Doxis network is down, so you lose that visibility. So this is an alternative, like you said, out-of-band method to be able to get the telemetry data from that smart amplifier to see why your Doxis network is down. And that, I think, is brilliant. So that that's that goes hand-in-hand with the smart amps and the upstream AGC and the leveling control and temperature effects. New mimics, new hybrids are lower power, more powerful. One of the things we're worried about with 1.8 is Higher frequency, more loss in the coax. Am I going to just go out and start underspacing my amplifiers because I can't reach? Yeah. Well, now I got to well, cut cable. I was going to say, I got to cut cable. You might as well run fiber. Yeah, that, that's you know? not going to be very cost effective. Yeah. <laughs> so, good thing technology is giving us higher outputs, um, maybe less power draw, and we can upgrade housings without having to respace. Yes. Which is, I think, a uh, it's a number one rule. If I can do taps without respacing and cutting them out, if I can do amplifiers without respacing or cutting them out, that's I think the no the, the a no brainer. If I can put in a module that a technician doesn't really have to think too much, they just plug it in and things kind of set up on their own. That's going to be worth its weight in gold as well. 
Uh, and and it also brings in the time to market. Like one of the some of the sessions we were at during SCT Expo a couple weeks ago, it talked about the labor market, and it's going yes. to be hard to get people to actually upgrade an entire plant if it's going to take them, you know, a lot of time to like mess with connectors and you know how it is. Massive amounts of work. And, yeah. and so I think that brings us to an important question. I mean, if, so John, if you owned a cable plant and you have Doxus 3.1 already deployed, would you, when would you be looking or would you be looking to upgrade to Doxus 4.0? And if so, would it be FDX or EST? So, I would cherry pick, I think, what I need. And here's why I think I said everything is going to be together or you're going to do both. Or um, I, If I had a system that was very densely populated, I might do FDX um, to get because I could do N plus zero. And I think the N plus zero gets me a lot closer to be able to do something like that. But it has to be really um, dense. Yeah. If the CPE on the market will support both FDX and ESD, That'll be perfect. Yes. But if I have to pick one or the other, I'm probably going to go the ESD route because uh, I think it'd be less complex, less less complexity, and it might even be cheaper modems as well. Um, so there's this third option we're all looking at. It's called Unified Doxus 4.0, and I think Broadcom might have the even a trademark name on Unified, so we'd call it United or I don't care what <laughs> Unity. <you call> it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. And the idea, and I, I had this, I looked up some of my old slides from like two, three years ago, and uh, I came up with my own, my own uh, acronym. Of course it's you did. It's truly an acronym. It's called FUD. <laughs> and then, you know, FUD. FUD to us is fear and uncertainty and doubt, right? Yeah. But I called it, and some people already called it something else, and I didn't like the name. They call it static FDX. I called it flexible upstream downstream. Right. And that basically meant there's no diplex filter in the amplifier, so like FDX, okay. but there is... Uh, no overlapping frequencies at all. So it's no, not full duplex. So you don't need but the echo are, cancellation then? Is that You'll still need the echo cancellation uh, because you don't have diplex photos. Okay. You don't want things leaking around. Right. But you, um, you allow the CMTS. The CMTS is going to have to be smarter too. Because remember, the downstream is always on. The CMTS or cloud-native CMTS or whatever is driving the signal or telling the RPD, the remote five device, to turn on it's going to have to turn on and off so what we're saying is say i want 10 gig the cmts sees that and says oh i'm going to schedule downstream from 108 to 1.2 gigahertz mm -hmm. all ofdm six blocks and you can do all six blocks okay so i can ring the bell 10 gig and then you're like oh i need two gig on the upstream cmts is going to say all right turn off these downstreams and the 108 to 684 turn on upstreams and let you transmit from five to 684 megahertz OFDMA. Hmm. So it's one or the other. It's not at the same time, but that means the CMTS has to be smart enough to turn downstream on and off. It doesn't do that today, right? Correct. You hard set it and it's done. So, I mean, if you're doing that on and off, are you able to maintain stream, you know, streaming services? Like voice and video, because typically today, when you have a, you know, say we're watching Netflix, you have that continuous streaming. What happens when you shut it down? Uh, you would make sure multicast and and voice and all those services are above six eighty four on the blocks. Okay. They're scheduled on the blocks above six eighty four. The other blocks that could go up and down, that would be like some lower frequency blocks. 
Yeah, the frequency blocks. Yeah, below 684. Right. They would be the ones that maybe you say that's like the bleed over when someone wants to get 10 gig. Well, they're always using this spectrum first. And then if they want to ring the bell and they really need it, we'll activate these and they'll start bleeding over into these other OFDM blocks. So it's, so it's very frequency agile then that you can have some parts that are going to be continuously streaming and then the lower frequencies you're going to have kind of on and off downstream. Yeah, it's, right. It's not that makes sense. Yeah. Seems, it seems to be a little bit more, um, a little bit more flexible thing. architecture, flexible yeah. of an architecture. Yeah, flexible. I call it flexible upstream downstream flood. Yeah, <laughs> it's a yeah. Flood. I like the F. But the idea is, you could. Oh, we're getting time. <laughs> is Mia now running one of those little sound things? She is. <laughs> <laughs> but you can say, I need to hit certain speeds. But I don't need to go to 1.8 gigahertz. Right. Uh, maybe I just go to 1.2, and when I need it, I could. The up, if I need the upstream, you can scale can, up and scale down as needed. Yeah. Yes. So yeah. rather than splitting the node, you just increase your frequencies yeah. to a higher frequency. Well, I, I like that. It's almost like the best of both worlds. But I think it's the complexity is going to be in the CMTS being able to schedule the you know the the downstream to turn on and off. Because right now you can you configure a controller, a downstream controller, and Quam mod and profile modulation, and, and then you say, all right, turn it on, and it's on. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, Upstreams sure. are get scheduled. I'm sure the spec writers at Cable Labs love our discussions, John. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I think that would be the way to go. Because I'm not pigeonholed, my hamstringing myself, pigeonholing myself, whatever the word is. Yeah. Uh, and going Hang yourself FDA. into a corner. Yes. <laughs> Any metaphor or saying you want to come with, I'll, I'll go with that. Um, because then I, they're only Broadcom, I think Max Linear is getting into the game as well, which is great. Uh, they're making chipsets. So if they can provide me a CP, a customer premise equipment that maybe has echo cancellation, but can do a flexible upstream downstream, has all the capacity in the modem to do 10 gig down and 5 gig up, then I'm kind of future proofed. There's no diplex photor in it. You know, it's a, like if it was ESD, there would be some type of programmable diplex filter. And maybe there would be a diplex filter that's programmable. But then remember we just talked about that that frequency split thing and Yeah, the higher so, you go, the more bandwidth we waste. So I think yeah. I think Broadcom and Max Linear know exactly what your Christmas wish is now, John. Yeah. So they're hopefully they'll get working on it and have that delivered by January. <laughs> December twenty fifth. <laughs> <laughs> or before. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, there, so are I, some, there are some forum modems being tested right now, um, and, but I, I don't know if they're one or the other, you know, yep. FTX versus ESD. So if you're, if you're a cable operator, I'd love to know what you plan on doing. Drop it in the chat. Drop it in the chat room. Let us know, you know, are you going ESD? Are you going to go um, DOCSIS 4.0 ESD? Or are you just going to stay at DOCSIS 3.1? Or are you going to go all fiber? I think there's lots of options which that's a great thing to have options and, and you know, options to extend DOCSIS, preserve your coax or options to go all fiber. Love to know what you're going to do. Let us know. So, so that came up during the uh, one session I attended and the all fiber, I think makes sense when you cherry pick a business subscriber. Yes. That wants to, they're willing to pay more money and you cherry pick them, throw them a high speed fiber connection What's great also is you offloaded them from your existing network, which frees up capacity for everybody else, right? Because they're the heavy user. 
Correct. So even a heavy user on your shared network can sometimes be more detrimental, maybe taking them off and putting them on. The, the problem with all fiber, and we brought this up, was it has to be all IP. Yes. Once you go EPON, GPON, there can't be any video there. And if you say, ah, oh, we'll do RFOG, that has its own problems. You can't do really OFDMA efficiently with Doxus 3, OFDMA with RFOG. Correct. We've talked about that before. Yeah, and I think, uh, I mean, a number of discussions we had was at SCTE Cable Expo with with um, some different operators was around the cost of going all fiber. Because a number of our viewers are like, why don't we all, you know, why aren't we all fiber right now? The cost to go all fiber will put operators out of business. It's um, very, very, very expensive. So a lot of operators that have, you know, kind of said, hey, we're going all fiber, they've pulled back on that because they saw the expense that it has. So, I mean, they're the plans. We're still eventually going to be fiber everywhere, but it's just delayed because it's very expensive to push fiber. I, I can see it. I can see the industry going to 4.0 in some capacity, one or the other capacity, and then fiber even deeper, 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 and still finding the numbers are cheaper to do maybe remote fi to a tap. Yes. And still have the coax or Wi-Fi, or FWA, or uh, something, you know, fixed wireless, or something from the tap into the house. And the house should be a gateway, right? No more coax in the house. It's Ethernet, Wi-Fi 7, whatever, in the house. So there's no RF problems in the house. Uh, and then from the tap, maybe you have eight customers off of one RFI device. So you got fiber really deep, inexpensive, how that you're going to power it up might be a different story. Um, <laughs> you're running fiber all the way to the tap. Maybe it's backfed somehow. Um, so I think it, you'll find that the cost, even running fiber to the curb or the, the next to the house, is still cheaper than fiber right into the house. Yep. Absolutely. You know what I'm saying? Because, you know, the, the trenching, the right-of-ways, the timing delivery, uh, the end devices – it's the final 100 feet that's very expensive. There's lots and lots of studies that talk about that. We'll take a couple more uh, questions in the chat here, and then we're going to wrap this up. So Abraham um, talks about, he says, as a customer, um, he's talking about, I hope the market uh, more on the reduction of latency. So he's talking about really low latency, um, or at least consistent latency. And Docs 4.0 than multi-gigabit speed. So he's more interested in the latencies, maybe a gamer or something like that. Um, yeah. Uh, as most consumer hardware don't support multi-gig speeds, um, so actually, so so there, I think there's multiple issues on on that comment, Abraham. So thanks for the the comment there. Um, we are like low latency, or at least consistently consistent latency, is something that as an in industry we're focused on. And the newer hardware, some a number of Doxis three one modems are supporting like five gigabit per second ports on the back and. The Doxis 4.0 modems that will be coming out will all, I think, support at least 2.5 or 5 gigabit ports on the back, uh, if not more. That's just common in, in the hardware now. 25 gig ports. I'm sorry, what's Potentially a 25 gig port. Yep. Because if, if I'm trying to offer 10 gig service, you'll never get it from a 10 gig port. So right. to hit 10 gig to yep. ring that bell, you might need a 25 gig port or, you know, and, and we talk about, the, you know, multiple. One device doesn't need uh, one, two, three gig, but your house is its own little network microcosm, and you might need five gig in the house Correct. because you have ten different devices, multiple you know? people so, using yeah, yeah. <laughs> upwards of so a that gig. one modem has to support that five gig, 
but it's not for one service flow. You know, it's 10, you know, it's your kid doing one thing, you're doing one thing and you're DVR and something and you have a camera and whatever. So there's a lot of things going on at the same time. But I thought what you said about not just reduced latency, but consistent latency, you know, changing latency really would be jitter. Yes. You know, jitter is more of a problem. If everyone had the same latency, Everyone would be happy. You wouldn't notice, <laughs> not, unless it's extraordinarily yeah. high, like 150 or 200 milliseconds of latency. Yeah. But I think so. Rick Yuzi asks a question, which I think ties into Abraham's question: um, Will an upgrade to FDX or ESD Doxus 4.0 provide any benefits for a subscriber with a Doxus 3.1 modem? So I think is you know it's kind of like when we upgraded from Doxus 3.0 to Doxus 3.1, you you relieved the overutilization for the Doxus 3.0 users because you're taking subscribers off of the SC qualm and putting them onto OFDM channels. So now you have more capacity freed up on Doxus 3.0 channels. So yes, Doxus 3.1 definitely improved the quality of experience for Doxus 3.0 users. And I think we'll see the same thing as we upgrade to Doxus 4.0. We're, we're increasing the bandwidth on the upstream and increasing the bandwidth on the downstream. So we have now more capacity even for Doxus 3.1 users. So it, it should increase yeah. the quality of experience, provided we do everything right when we deploy yeah. these networks. Yeah, at first I was going to say no, but you brought up the good point of like you're sharing capacity. It's a shared you're network. Not, so if you give... You're 4.0 and you change out all your equipment, the big advantage is you're adding more capacity. We make a bigger pipe. Everybody. Yeah. yeah. If we give it a bigger pipe. So, yep. and Abraham uh, says, yes, the modem, um, the modem ports may have multi-gigabit speeds, but not my network switches or my Wi-Fi or my lap, my laptop over the over Ethernet. So, um, so I, I mean, ideally, you have a bigger pipe coming in, Abraham. Um, but you're, but you make a very good point, Abraham. Your home network, and I think this goes for all home subscribers. If you have issues in your home network. Fixing Doxus or giving a bigger pipe into your home network isn't going to fix your problems. you got to make sure your home network, um, your Wi-Fi network, your internal switches, everything like that is operating well. Um, because there's a lot of times we see this as, you know, as operators that the Doxus network is working fine, but there can be in-home Wi-Fi issues that are a problem. And so we got to, you know, a lot of times we're fixing subscribers' networks in order to resolve the quality of experience for subscribers, and there was no issue on the Doxus network. Now, you know, there's lots of issues on the Doxus network that we have to fix too, um, but many times technicians are trying to fix in-home issues for subscribers to re resolve individual subscriber issues. So good point on that, Abraham. And isn't the consortium that works on Wi-Fi working on 7 now? Wi-Fi seven, yeah, at least Wi-Fi seven, yeah. yeah. So, and those so, are I mean, those are like gigabit or higher speeds that we can get yeah, on those I mean, networks. Every time we go with new technology, the Wi-Fi consortium gets together to try to keep up with it. Yep. So, but you could have CPE that still has you know older Wi-Fi that will never get past one gig. Or a subscriber that has just one access point in their home and their computers or their you know laptop or whatever is far away from that access point, and that's going to have them really low speed. So making sure you have a good Wi-Fi network in your home is really important, having good speeds, low latency, all the things that you want for good quality of service. And I think with that, John, we've 
wrapped up another episode. So Yeah, we covered a lot, right? We did. I mean, we covered a lot more in Doxus 4.0 in this one. So a big thanks, John. We really appreciate the knowledge you dropped on us again today. And thanks to our audience. Thanks for the questions. Thanks for tuning in. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. Um, Catch the amazing Ron Rannick um, next week, November 10th. Ron will be telling us about what is our F. Can't wait because that will also be some great information. So, John, thanks again. We'll see you soon in the next episode. So, all right. That, see you all. We're out. Have a good weekend. Bye, Probably all. Like <laughs>